Shut up and sit down. Welcome. Welcome back to In the Context of Empire. It's been a while. We all have very busy lives. I myself have a one-year-old daughter. Uh, this whole fatherhood thing has taken up a lot more time than I thought it would. Uh, but of course, it's fantastic. And I'm lucky today to be joined by my co-host. Uh, this time, it's Matt Connors, my good friend. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. That's good to hear. And we are very fortunate to once again be joined by Bryce Green. Bryce was back on the podcast maybe back in February. I know it was right before the Russian invasion of Ukraine because we were talking about it as if it hadn't happened yet. Like, I don't, I don't want to diminish that podcast because a lot of what Bryce was saying was really excellent context for the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the allegedly unprovoked Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and I think if you listen to that podcast, that's a, a few episodes back, you'll find that Bryce outlines exactly why, even though we were recording it before the invasion, it was certainly not an unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. But Bryce is back to talk to us about some different but equally important topics. Well, first of all, Bryce, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me back on. It's good to be here. Yes, it's great to have you back. And I should mention that Bryce is a contributor at Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, one of my personal favorite places to get great media criticism and to really get behind the the context of stories in the mainstream media. So just to give us an overview, not everyone has heard the last podcast. Maybe people haven't read your work yet. We encourage them to go do so. You have these two great new pieces out. Uh, last two weeks, really, or last three weeks in fairness and accuracy in reporting, that's fair.org. You have the first one is NPR distorts the history of the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. And then even more recently, you have NPR devotes almost two hours to Afghanistan over two weeks and 30 seconds to starving, U.S. starving Afghans. So before we even get into those articles, Bryce, like, you strike me as someone who has a, a lot of interest in reviewing stories, particularly stories in the mainstream media that are about alleged U.S. enemy countries. What gives you this interest in kind of tackling and debunking official propaganda when it comes to the U.S.'s relationship with other countries? Yeah, part of any leftist uh, education, it involves learning about all the stuff that the United States is doing abroad, learning about the, you know, the empire, right? Uh, but another part of that is learning how those things get covered at home and get obscured from the public view, right? When you're learning about all this stuff that the U.S. done in the past, in the past, one of the things that really strikes you is just how little of it you knew at first, uh, how little of it has actually trickled down to the mainstream memory of American history, right? Well, when I was, uh, when I learned about, you know, the U.S. terrorist wars in South America, I was surprised. You know, I considered myself a decently educated, you know, I was a good high school student, loved history. Uh, but the fact that the U.S. supported, you know, death squads in South America to utterly destroy the country, which laid the groundwork for uh, that's why we see South America as synonymous with poverty in a lot of situations now. Um, but that connection was never made for me growing up. Uh, and so learning about that stuff, you see, okay, this stuff was suppressed. Uh, this stuff was 
omitted from the official quote unquote version of history. And, and then learning about the stuff that the U.S. is doing now, you get to watch that process play out in real time. And, and so I think capturing that is, is important in its own right. Um, I think it was, it might have been Noam Chomsky who said that uh, propaganda is to a democracy what the bludgeon is to a dictatorship. Uh, what that means is that in a dictatorship, you know, uh, controlling the uh, hearts and minds of people is less important than controlling their bodies, right? You can, if someone steps out of line, you can just, you know, beat the hell out of them and uh, send them to a dungeon. Um, but in a democracy, that sort of violence, it happens, but it's a lot less legitimate. And so techniques of uh, m mass manipulation are far more important. So here in the Imperial Corps, I think it's well worth studying those things. Yeah, that's well put. And, and I think the, you're hitting on something that is uh, very personal to Matt and myself because we are both teachers. And something I, I've only recently, you know, even though I've been teaching for now, this is my 16th year, uh, only in the last few years have I really realized just how poor the poorly done the U.S. education system is, specifically with regards to history. And that, you know, I've been reading more and more Chomsky, Michael Parenti, and like the way that propaganda works. And I've realized that a lot of the critiques you could say about media, you can say about education, right? It's not necessarily lying, although sometimes it is actually lying. But more often, it's just like suppression of facts. So you mentioned like, you know, we didn't really learn about in when I was, I'm a little older than you, but the we didn't learn much about the U.S. war on Nicaragua, the terrorist war on Nicaragua in the 1980s when I was in high school. And what actually what you really realize is you barely learn about any of the wars the United States has fought. You know, the United States, I think there was a study that came out a couple of weeks ago. The United States has had something like 400 military interventions, and it's only been around for 246 years or so. Mm -hmm. That's more than one per year. And, you know, there's other studies like David Vine uh, we've had on the podcast before. He shows that the U.S. has only had 11 years in its history where it hasn't been at war. And yet, somehow in high school, I don't know, what do you learn? Like, the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, maybe you cover the War of 1812, maybe the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II. That's really about it, but that's not... The majority of U.S. wars are like counterinsurgency wars fought against people just striving for self-determination or sovereignty against indigenous people, against Central Americans. And that, and of course those wars are pretty hard to defend and it i would say it's not coincidental that they're largely left out of the education system uh but bryce we did want to make sure we we address like the the meat of what your critique is here that we, we want to discuss so you've been listening to npr a lot lately it sounds like you listen to npr quite frequently and uh you know npr has a has a Reputation, correct me if I'm wrong, I think NPR has a reputation as a relatively centrist slash liberal network. It kind of sets the boundaries for yeah. what is acceptable to say. I, I could be wrong. I know there's, you know, I, my leftist friends will say, well, of course, NPR takes all kinds of corporate money. But NPR is kind of seen as the, I wouldn't say left wing, but it is the liberal end of the acceptable, acceptable end of opinion. They yeah, it's like it's like the neutral. A lot of people think of it as a as a neutral centrist, uh, but left kind of left leaning because you know liberals will say, "Oh, well, reality is just liberal." <laughs> um, they'll say that, um, but it, 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 they they have a lot of authority because 
people don't see them as part of the partisan fray like uh, like CNN or MSNBC. And they take themselves more seriously than people on CNN and MSNBC do. That's for sure. But uh, when you actually delve deep into the narratives that animate their coverage, the sorts of stories that they decide to cover, um, they're actually not too different from uh, from those cable channels. Right. So that that's our jumping off point. So Matt and I read both of your pieces, and they they are both excellent. And they but they do focus on NPR, and they are quite critical in in a way that I think a lot of listeners to NPR might not realize how misled they're they're get they're being uh, propagandized. So. Let's talk about this. How did you end up focusing on NPR for these two pieces? Uh, my impression was you were just li- like my imagination was you were listening to NPR and they, you heard one piece, uh, one interview, and it just set you off, and you just went on a mad, mad tirade of writing and uh, disputing their messaging. So tell us the origins of these two stories. How did you come to write these two articles about Afghanistan debunking some of the propaganda NPR was trying to spread? Well, it's actually pretty much. Like you said, I try to listen to NPR pretty often. I mean, not because I agree with them politically. You know, I listen to and consume a, a good deal of news from all sorts of all sorts of ideological backgrounds. Uh, but you know, I grew up listening to NPR. Like my mom would have it on, and then when I started getting kind of political in high school, I would listen to it more. Um, but as I became, you know, more left, I. I started, you know, listening to it more critically, but I still listened to it. Um, and so one morning on Morning Edition, uh, I hear, you know, Steve Inskeep, they they announced that they're doing a series in Afghanistan. They actually sent Steve out to Afghanistan to interview a few people. Um, uh, incidentally, I don't, I don't even know how we can shoehorn this in the interview, but he was there and living a few blocks away from where uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri was uh, assassinated. Um, or at least where the Biden administration says he was assassinated, which uh, that's that's strange to me, but uh, I don't know what to make of it. So <laughs> I think I'll just leave it there. Um, but yeah, I was listening to it. And then uh, Inskeep introduces his interview subject uh, as the son of Mullah Omar, the Taliban leader. And he says, uh, Mullah Omar refused to hand over bin Laden, which is why the U.S. invaded. Uh, and that set me off. I was like, well, that's not what happened. That's not why the U.S. invaded uh, for a number of reasons. And so then you're right. I Later that day, I was like, okay, you know, let me just hack this out and uh, de- read through the transcript, see if I missed anything, like listen to it a, a couple more times, see the article version, because you know how NPR do the audio version and then uh, uh, article version of the same story. Uh, see if I missed anything. And no, uh, they actually just glance over that history. And that is, you know, that's how a lot of people view that conflict. That's how the Bush administration sold it. That's how I learned it growing up. Uh, But the reality is a lot more complicated. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And um, I do think that most people, I think if you ask around, you know, you talk to people, why did the United States fight a war in Afghanistan? If, if you're if you were alive at the time, I think, and and watching the news, I think that is largely the explanation. Now, there's all kinds of problems wrong that are 
inherent in that explanation to begin with, like the very premise, even if it's all true, it's still extremely problematic, but people, Mm -hmm. but it's not even true. And I'm sorry, Matt, it looks like you wanted to jump in. What did you, what were you thinking about that? Well, I, you know, it's what NPR represents, you know, the, the, is it that we're in cars or that we're, you know, not always able to be reading the idea that you're listening to voices that come from Afghanistan, these pieces in their short, they're five minutes, seven minutes, but they're not, uh, you know, CNN short. So, you know, they present themselves as just the way PBS NewsHour does. We, we do serious, we do things, we take the time to go in depth. And they definitely consider themselves, you know, on this uh, public service mission of creating an informed American public so that we will do right as a country. You know, they're just, you can just almost hear them all clapping each other on the back. And especially in the pieces where they're interviewing media in Afghanistan, you know, they're, they're, they're rightfully celebrating the efforts of, of people to, you know, continue to do journalism in Afghanistan. Um, but they, they just assume, you know, just like we do, you know, like, it's like <laughs> what we're trying to do. Um, but just the names of their programs, all things considered, it's like, well, I don't think so. You know, like, I think it's like a couple of things are considered and a whole lot left out. Or the other one, that, you know, it's, which is not one of the, any of the pieces that focused on Afghanistan recently, the takeaway. And so, you know, with with the whole, with the, the last, you know, the uh, last August, the in September, just the, the coverage of the withdrawal of U.S. forces and the um, takeover by the Taliban and the focus on the humanitarian suffering, um, it was, uh, uh, you know, just, it was, it's very difficult to watch for everybody, but, uh, um, you know, that's, uh, I'll come back to that point. I'll just leave it that, leave it there for a second. Yeah. And I think, I think what Matt's getting at is, is really important is like, cause NPR, it really is how it portrays itself. And, and again, I think we going back to what we were starting with it, they set it's important to go at Bryce, you can comment on this, of course, but in my, in my view, and I think, uh, Largely, a lot of people on the left, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm not making this up. I, I, I would take it from again, like people like Chomsky, Michael Parenti. It's important to go after these kind of gatekeepers on of what is acceptable to discuss, right? So a lot of people would say NPR is like as far as you can go on the ideological spectrum. So it's important to criticize them. Along, you know, I would say I don't know where NPR falls a lot falls. Uh, in comparison to like the New York Times or Washington Post, but it's largely the same dynamic here. Like they set the parameters for what is acceptable to say. Um, but- yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's true. Like they're like for the rational, uh, the or like uh, the person who thinks of themselves as the rational, neutral, objective observer, they'll usually go to NPR. Like I'm, I'm on a college campus right now and several professors will just like bring up like, yeah, I was listening to NPR earlier and they had a really good piece on blah, 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 this, this or that or the other thing. Um, but if you, if you can show how the so-called neutral objective, um, uh, people who claim to be giving the full story actually are not giving the full story. I mean, that's a useful educational tool. Like I send, uh, some of the pieces to my parents. Uh, who, you know, listen to NPR and they'll be like, oh, wow, you know, I always thought NPR was, uh, you know, pretty good and trustworthy. And 
you know, I'm not saying that they are they're liars, that they're that they're bad people. I mean, sometimes they'll they'll, they'll I mean, they may occasionally lie, um, and they may misrepresent facts or not delve too deeply. Um, but you know, people when you show people just the way. And I'm sure you've talked about this whole propaganda model on your show, like the Chomsky-Herman propaganda model. If you show that model in action, if you show how uh, they uh, decide who's a worthy victim and who's an unworthy victim, and that you show how, uh, okay, well, you don't criticize the U.S., but you'll criticize another person, even when the U.S. is doing a lot, uh, a lot of wrong. If you, if you show that in action, I mean, it really tells people how their media system is captured by uh, essentially state apologists. Uh, people, it, it, it's essentially state media, right? Uh, Chomsky always makes the comparison to uh, between the New York Times and like Pravda. So yes, they might not uh, be forced to be saying the things they are, but if they weren't saying the things they were, they wouldn't be there. Um, and so, so is the case with NPR. If, I think if you had tried to put a piece that really delved into the history of Afghanistan on NPR, the editors would be like, uh, uh, they would be like, no, uh, they would be like, or at least they try and water it down. Uh, but yeah, I think that's the importance of talking about NPR in this way. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, the whole like intent thing to me personally is kind of irrelevant like people don't necessarily intend to disseminate propaganda whether they intend to do it or not is kind of irrelevant when you're disseminating propaganda uh you know i hate to keep coming back to chomsky i'll, I'll go to michael parenti here it's like you know he has that famous line it's like he like he's arguing with a journalist and the journalist says to him like i'll have you know i say what i like no one edits me and then he corrects the journalist and he says listen you say what you like because they like what you say. In other words, you wouldn't be on that network if they didn't know that you were going to say acceptable things. Uh, but Bryce, like we haven't even gotten to the meat of your great art, both of your great articles. But the the second article is extremely critical. Uh, but we have to get we have to get to the substance of the first article first. So there is a narrative they're putting forward. You mentioned that briefly that NPR is putting forth this narrative that. Taliban, specifically Mullah Omar, would not give up Osama bin Laden. Well, first of all, what are they saying? What are they assuming? I think you elaborate a little bit on it. But and then what is the actual truth versus what they're saying? And I think p people listening to this who haven't either heard previous episodes of this show or haven't read up on this will be shocked as to what the actual truth is versus what the accepted narrative is. So go ahead, Bryce. What's the truth versus yeah. what, is, what did NPR put out there? Yeah, so like, you know, the, the official version, again, I'll run through it. You have, uh, you know, 9-11, you know, uh, brutal attack. And then you have the U.S. saying, hey, bin Laden did this. And then you say, hey, the Taliban are shielding bin Laden in Afghanistan. And then the U.S. tries to get bin Laden out of Afghanistan, but the Taliban refuses. And so the U.S. goes in to uh, kick down the Taliban's door, get bin Laden, and, you know, overthrow the Taliban in the process just for fun. That's that's pretty much what the official narrative is. But, uh, I mean, go back to 9-11 and then go back to the days after that. The Bush administration, or actually take it take it even before 9-11. Take, uh, take it back to the Taliban's relationship with al-Qaeda. And take it uh, and, and look at 
just the contentious relationship that they actually had. Uh, the Taliban, even before 9-11, was repeatedly offering to give up bin Laden. They didn't really like him. You know, there were a, a lot of customs among uh, some of the more religious, uh, more traditional Islamists who believed that, you know, it was it was wrong to kick out a guest once you've offered your shelter. But then they were like, oh, well, bin Laden's causing us a lot of problems. We kind of want him out of here. The U.S. received these offers, and, and you know, this was acknowledged by uh, several U.S. officials, but they said, no, we don't trust the Taliban to actually give a hand over bin Laden. So they didn't even try, which, uh, okay. And then you get 9-11, and then in the days after 9-11, the Taliban is again saying, hey, we are willing to give up bin Laden to a third neutral country, uh, or we'll put him on trial here in Afghanistan ourselves. All you have to do is give us evidence of bin Laden's involvement. Uh, and the U.S. said, no, we're not going to accept any proposal to give him up to a third country or put him on trial. We're not going to give you evidence. We want you to give us bin Laden right now or else. And the Taliban, you know, over the next several days, they repeatedly issued the same offer. They were like, no, 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 you guys are being ridiculous. Come on, there's a process to this. Uh, show us the evidence. Well, the U.S. sent over uh, evidence, quote-unquote evidence, uh, but even the Wall Street Journal at the time described it as more of a fact sheet than actual evidence. You know, it was a list of accusations. Uh, you know, come to find out, uh, months later, the U.S. actually didn't have evidence that bin Laden was behind the attacks. And this was admitted by, you know, FBI Director Mueller, uh, uh, State Department officials, and others. Um, so the U.S. didn't have evidence that bin Laden was behind 9-11. Um, and the Taliban didn't give him up without evidence, so the U.S. started bombing. And even after the U.S. started bombing, the Taliban, uh, again, they were like, okay, stop bombing and we will give you up bin Laden. We will give up bin Laden. We will send him to a neutral third country. We will put him on, we'll get him a trial. Just stop bombing. And this time, they even dropped the requirements for evidence. They said, you don't even need to give us evidence. Just stop bombing us, and we will give you bin Laden. But the U.S. refused. And, you know, a month later, the Taliban was overthrown. Uh, so when we go back to the official narrative, the Taliban refused to hand over bin Laden, and that's why the U.S. went into Afghanistan. Well, that's not the case. That, uh, that's so misleading so as to be false. Uh, the Taliban repeatedly offered, the U.S. refused these offers, and they wanted to bomb anyway. And so this whole justifying myth for the war in Afghanistan is based on a complete fraud. So you have 20 years of death and destruction and civil war and civil strife, roadside bombing, soldiers coming home with PTSD, 20 years of that justified based on a lie. And NPR decided to repeat that lie uh, the fact that they did that is really indefensible for any serious journalist, for anyone who's uh, read seriously any history of, of the matter. Uh, I can't speak to as, as to whether Inskeep knows this or not. I mean, who knows with these people, right? They delude themselves. They fall prey to their own myths, their own propaganda. Uh, so Steve Inskeep may well believe he might not have even looked to it beyond reading Bush administration talking points and seeing them on CNN. Uh, but the fact is he's just wrong. And it's embarrassing that a journalist would say something like that. Yeah, and I can see, Matt, you want to jump in. I just want to say that what Bryce is saying is not just, like, us saying it. it these are not, like, 
obscure sourcing he's referencing. Th these are stories reported in like the Guardian, right? The it's well it's well reported that the Taliban attempted to give up Osama bin Laden. They were making the radical request that the U.S. present them with evidence that he was guilty of a major crime. Um, and all you have to do is ask, like, how quickly would the United States extradite someone to another country? And then upon, you know, assuming the United States would ever do that, when the United States asks for evidence, they say, no, we know he's guilty. We just hand him over. Like how, and that you, and of course you ref, you reference uh, uh, Pashtun culture. I, th I think it's called like the Pashtun Wali cult code like you don't hand over guests to a foreign enemy i would say that's pretty universal right like it would look pretty yeah. bad for any country to just turn over someone you gave refuge to to some foreign power so it's like you know not you know we're not going to get into like what the taliban is and our disagreements with them that's kind of irrelevant at this point no very few governments in the world would agree to such a an ultimatum so they kind of put them in the situation where there was almost no chance that they weren't going to get bombed uh and you exactly exactly it, you know it sounds like another situation where you know our american public gets a rationale for war that's just not at all connected to what the actual reason for the war is and you know we had a lot of bombs to drop you know they're gathering dust or i don't know what they do if they don't get used military uh industries that you know we are in the post-war era and we needed a war you know I, I don't need a war but apparently the people running our country needed they need wars but look if i come back to the the substance of the the 18 pieces you focused on in the second um article uh there's a mission that the NPR is on, um, and it's partially to sanitize this history. Um, the, the the way in which they use the military guests to talk about you know what it's like to be serving in Afghanistan. You know the the guy who was you know real high up who is introduced as Frank, not by his military title, his his rank, but as Frank, like regular guy Frank, and you know some neighborhood barbecue that you might meet and talk to. Uh, Mary Louise Kelly, I believe, is doing that interview. Um, and then the, the Elliot Ackerman stuff. Uh, the I think Ackerman, unless there's a third one in there, it's hard to keep track. You know, we had a mission. It was uh, uh, to save the good guys and kill the bad guys. And it's like, oh, like what? Like, you know. Yeah, it's like it's a Marvel movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, sanitizing the history is clearly, clearly a thing. But back to this whole NPR's self-importance, you know, and again, the takeaway is not the program we're talking about, but with all the coverage of the fall of Afghanistan, you know, and people being horrified watching it and Republicans attacking Biden for fumbling it somehow and the Democrats saying, you know, he had no choice. This is Trump said it, you know, the whole thing. It's like the question was, well, what are people saying we should be doing instead? You know, are you saying like, troops should still be there. Like that question was never asked really well in our media. Um, you know, so again, like with every single one of these NPR pieces, the question is, what's the takeaway? What are we saying? You're describing the horrible conditions that women face. What are you saying we should do? What are you saying should be done? Like there is no, and I know, you know, good journalism shouldn't be telling you what should be done. 
But clearly they were, they had goals. They had this mission of, all right, the very least, you're going to come away not feeling bad about our role in Afghanistan. Like we tried, we, we, mm -hmm. we had a good mission and we tried. And our soldiers, you know, like when they, that moment where uh, Mary Louise Kelly and I think I'm going to mix them up, but they both sort of like say, yeah, it reminded me of my father in Vietnam. And he goes, yes, I think more of my, my, my Vietnam brethren than I had before. And, you know, it's like the good service there and the good service here. And I'm thinking like, wait, that's, you, you're going to talk about Afghanistan and Vietnam in the same sentence. And that's the connection you make. It's just like the nobility of our efforts. It, it's just really, really lacking. And, and then the rest of it is all focused on um, the situation of women. And that's the big cover for, you know, how we were so right about what we tried to do in Afghanistan, because it was all about uh, advancing uh, women's rights. And to me, that one is just really hard to take as something to hear people say uh, seriously. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. It's just super cynical the way they zero in on uh, on the Afghan women. Uh, and, and, you know, that's an important story. I, I don't want to downplay the fact that, uh, uh, that, you know, half the population in this country uh, are living under, you know, a good deal of oppression. Um, but the fact is that they try to make it seem like that's what motivates U.S. policy, that that's what animates the U.S. adventurism abroad, that we are here to save the women, uh, when in reality, they don't care about that women. And or we're going to get into this more, but, you know, they are starving these very same women that they claim to care so much about. Uh, and NPR, that NPR claims to care so much about. Um, you know, I didn't do a, a total count of how many of these stories or how much time was focused on the plight of Afghan women. But, I mean, that takes up a, a significant amount, a disproportionate amount compared to the... Uh, the humanitarian crisis. And so it, see, it seems that they, they are focusing on a problem that they know that they can't solve rather than focusing on a problem that they know that they're responsible for. And uh, the only way to describe that, the only framework to understand that sort of coverage in is propaganda. Right. I, I think to make that even abundantly more clear, like the NPR audience can only really affect the policies of the U.S. government. The U.S. government is not is not the Taliban, right? The Taliban are the ones who are um, putting restrictions on where girls can go to schools. It's tragic, but we have much less much less agency to affect that policy. We have lots of agency to affect the policies that are instituted by the United States, which we're going to get to. That are tragically much more harmful. Uh, but before we move on, I, I just want to make clear, Bryce, your argument is it about that, that the Taliban did not have this close relationship with Al-Qaeda. It's even worse than what you're saying, because in, in fact, the Taliban tried to warn the United States about the 9-11 attacks. The, the, this foreign minister you mentioned in your article, Wakil Ahmed Muta Wakil, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, in August of 2001, this is reported in the in the Guardian, uh, in a, an article called "Warning of 9/11 Attack Ignored." This foreign minister for the Taliban went to the CIA in Pakistan and tried to warn them about an attack being planned by Al Qaeda in Afghanistan. Because again, they were very uncomfortable with Al Qaeda being in Afghanistan, because who wants to draw the ire of the globe, the global superpower? 
Um, they tried to warn the CIA in Pakistan, and like the article title says, they were ignored. So it's like, do people know this? Do people know that the Taliban tried to warn the United States about Al-Qaeda and 9-11? I feel like if people understood that, there would be a lot more outrage that, what, what 2,400 Americans died in Afghanistan, probably about 20,000 uh, lost limbs or became uh, seriously injured as a result. God knows how many with serious uh, post-traumatic stress injury. Um, and back to the women thing, I, we we can't skip past this. The United States cares about women in Afghanistan. I mean, come on. The United States supported some of the most radically anti-women uh, extremists in Afghanistan, not only through the 80s, but even into the 90s. Like People like Golbuddin Hekmatar, warlords who used to uh, throw acid in women's faces. The United States doesn't care about women. The United States supports the most anti-women theocracies, <laughs> autocracies in the world. See Saudi Arabia. I mean, come on, man. Like, it's just like, what, how selective do you have to be to believe that the United States mission had anything to do with helping women? I mean, the United States can't help women in the United States. Like, this is, it's <laughs> such a silly argument. But, right. The uh, only way that that, uh, that that argument is able to stand is when the media coverage doesn't even acknowledge the things that America does that are completely hypocritical. Like, they don't make the comparison. They say, they, they accept at face value that the United States cares about women. They know that the United States supports Saudi Arabia, which is notoriously barbarous towards women. They know that, but they don't want to tell you that. They don't want to put two and two together for their audience. Uh, you can ask them why, but uh, you know the propaganda model. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty good. It's a pretty good first approximation to how this entire process of historical suppression and you know memory holding works. Yeah, Matt, do you want to jump in? Uh, yes, I mean another thing is that uh, you know some places, even in these NPR pieces, but maybe in the Times, maybe in in other places. You'll get this analysis of corruption uh, with the Taliban, corruption without the Taliban, uh, heroin production with the Taliban, without the Taliban. And it ought to present some real cognitive dissonance to uh, a, a serious person who's trying to understand, like, what the heck's going on here? How do we get here? Um, you know, you get the sense that, you know, the, the, the attempting to administer the country if the Taliban had a million dollars of their foreign reserves released, that would be a million dollars that would end up on the ground, um, you know, supporting agriculture or something like that, as opposed to, you know, the the uh, truckloads of cash that were delivered regularly to Afghanistan um, when the Taliban weren't in power going to, uh, you know, this corrupt person or that corrupt person. And so, you know, there'll be like this skirting mention of all this, but never... You know, we're focused. It's like, yeah, we don't ever want to portray the Taliban as this reaction to. And first of all, I consider the Taliban to be a artificial creation of outside interference of, of just chaos being sowed by all these parties that just use Afghanistan. And so years later, you end up with something like the Taliban. But even still, uh, the popularity that they enjoy is because people recognize them, to my understanding, as not the people who are corrupt, not the people who, um, you know, to a, to, a, to a really big degree. So there is this popular support for 
an end to corruption, an end to you know the way that the the country had been being run under U.S. occupation. Um, and you know, uh, we talk about what the but the media does. There's this other way in which the American people are consuming information and like popular culture. Anybody see the TV series uh, The Old Man with Jeff Bridges, where he's a CIA? Is it good? It's awful. But it's big and it's it was popular apparently, but it's like it's it's like all right. So this was drawn up in the same place that's trying to sanitize our history to give us this portrayal of Afghanistan as this absolutely unworkable place, where you know we good people try to do good things and you know what can you do? It's Afghanistan. You know it's like it's it's just it's really messed up. Right. The place was always bound to be like this. So you know. The United States couldn't have made this uh, any worse. Uh, they can only make it better, right? That's that's what a lot of people definitely feel. Yeah. So, like, so to the to the economics of all this here, you know, the um, the sanctions, the embargo of, uh, of of funds, the inability of Afghans to have international economic relations with the, with the U.S. dominated part of the world. Um, you know that isn't in those pieces, as you pointed out again and again. You know the, the 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 awful suffering of the people is barely mentioned, but where it's mentioned and what people already have a sense of is you know horrifying. Uh, the woman describing uh, an incubator shared by three babies um, who are being cared for by nurses who haven't been paid for two months. Uh, you know that's not the Taliban uh, mismanaging or. You know, we don't we don't believe in taking care of babies. That's 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 this that's this uh, financial policy that the U.S. is driving. It's structural. It's a structural. Uh, all of those problems are structural problems that the U.S. is exacerbating. Yeah, and I, I I would hate to move forward without saying, like this whole crisis of Afghan women, and it is a crisis. But you know the. It's they. It's talked about as if most Afghan women were living this amazing life while the U.S. was occupying their country. And I, in addition to reading Bryce's two articles that we'll plug and we'll link in the show notes, uh, I would encourage people to read a very long article in the New Yorker by Anand Gopal, who's also been on this podcast, called "The Other Afghan Women." And I mean, he goes into great detail about how is it that women in Afghanistan who were justifiably angered and and certainly justifiably uh, did not want to live under the Taliban. Still, many many women in Afghanistan preferred the Taliban compared to the U.S.-installed government for a number of reasons. One, the, the U.S. brought back all these old warlords, and he goes through this in detail, all these warlords who in the 90s, like people not, not Gulbuddin Hekmatar, but very much like Gulbuddin Hekmatar, who were equally repressive or worse than the Taliban. But also, he goes through this incredible study where he interviews women in the Afghan countryside where most of the war was fought and where records of people being killed are extremely shoddy. So, we, like, you see the numbers of people killed in Afghanistan. It is almost surely an undercount, even any official count you see, because the documentation, where the press can go in Afghanistan for the last 20 years has been extremely limited. But he talks to these women in these uh, rural towns in, in Afghanistan, and they all say they've lost something like 10 to 15 on average family members 
due to the U.S. to the U.S. war in the country, and that means things like drone strikes, things like night raids where people get killed, and it's like you can care about women and also understand that women don't want to live under drone strikes and bombings and night raids and having their uh, husbands killed, brothers killed, children killed. These are human rights violations at a scale that is really hard to speak of, and yet the only human rights violations that networks like like NPR seem to care about are the justify, you know, the understandably uh, really grievous ones like women not being allowed to go to school, but these other human rights violations matter as well. But Bryce, I want to move us forward uh, as we kind of move into our last section here, because I do want to get to like what's going on in Afghanistan now. But um, so we have this assassination of Ayman al-Zawahiri uh, al maybe three weeks ago, four weeks ago. And you know, they, that seemed to play a lot, have a lot of propaganda value, you know, like, um, you, you mentioned before, like, allegedly they assassinated him, and that's all we can really say, you know, we don't know that, because, and, and people will think this is crazy, but they've said they've assassinated this guy several times, and they also had this, you know, this, like, crazy celebration in most media of, like, how Biden assassinated this guy. Uh, there's all kinds of moral issues with it, whatever you think Ayman al-Zawahiri did, uh, you know, that there was this like celebration, well, they did it without killing any civilians. Well, I looked up an article, again, in The Guardian from 2014, and the article is literally uh, 76 children and 20 adults have been killed in attempts to kill Ayman al-Zawahiri. So maybe if they did even kill him this time in 2022. Maybe they didn't kill any civilians this time, but they killed a lot of civilians in the other attempts to try to kill this guy. Um, but uh, the Matt, other... you're forgetting to point out that Biden killed him supposedly while he had COVID. <laughs> yeah, so that's... it's like the, the, this is a, you know, his, his, the vitality of yeah. this man um, shining through that he was sick and yet could still accomplish this. And he managed to say some words, which other people took to say <laughs> some words to another person to push a button to murder someone 7,000 miles from where they were sitting. Um, but Bryce, I, what I really want to get to is like, this, like, the idea that Zawahiri allegedly was still chilling on like a rooftop in Kabul, do you think that adds to like the justification for the continued aggression and hostility toward the people of Afghanistan? Uh, it, yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, they, the assassination was used almost immediately by some to, uh, get, to try and push the U.S. to stop talking to the Taliban, to uh, stop negotiations about the, uh, the banking reserve, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, the U.S. was actually in talks with the Taliban at the time, and you know there were pieces about how this assassination sort of threw a monkey wrench into the whole thing. And, you know, we know that the U.S. still has, is running operations in the country. I mean, make no mistake, they haven't actually left. But, I mean, this can be a legitimizing force in the continued U.S. meddling, I won't say invasion but, or, or occupation, but U.S. meddling in Afghanistan. And one of the more interesting pieces that was included in my NPR sample was an interview with the son of... Ahmad Shah Massoud, who was uh, the leader of the Northern Alliance, mm -hmm. uh, a key group in backing the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan. Well, the interview is talking with uh, Massoud, and, you know, Inskeep's asking him, like, are your people ready for another war? Like, this man's, like, you know, talking a big game about trying to 
relaunch another attack on Afghanistan to, to quote unquote liberate it. Uh, he asked him, like, are you guys ready for another war? And he's like, well, you know, maybe we'll see. I'm sure the, maybe the Afghan people want freedom. And it's like, and I have a, I actually have a, a Google alert for uh, the name of Shah Masood, just because, uh, you know, Google alerts are kind of the coolest things ever. And you can find a lot of information. like that. And there have been increasing mentions of, of that name of, uh, you know, the little lion of Pangir, like about gassing him up as a new figure that could lead the anti-Taliban resistance in Afghanistan. And so to me, I mean, this is all speculation, but it seems to me that there's being like, uh, the seeds are being planted uh, at some later date for some future intervention involving these people in uh, in, in Pangir, involving uh, uh, some sort of disruption against the Taliban. And even as the U.S. left, um, the Biden administration said, well, we have now shifted our our goals in Afghanistan to now we're combating ISIS-K. Um, and ISIS-K, I mean, there, there's a whole other episode about, you know, the Kabul airport bombing, um, the, uh, the drone strike that killed civilians after that, and the alleged U.S. support for ISIS-K has been alleged by uh, quite a number of people um, uh, to varying these degrees of credibility. Um, but the U.S. has already stated that there is a reason for uh, the U.S. to still be involved in Afghanistan. So all of these factors combine to at least give the impression that it's not over, that despite the withdrawal, it is not over for Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, it's like they won't stop torturing. They, the U.S. doesn't leave a country alone. Like, I, I just finished this book uh, by Marilyn Young about the Vietnam wars like she chronicles the vietnam wars from like 1946 through the 1990s and it's like most of us in america in the united states think of the vietnam wars ending in for the united states in like 1973 with the final fall of saigon in 1975 but the reality is the u.s tortured vietnam for about 15 16 years after that through embargoes through supporting a Chinese invasion of Vietnam, through literally supporting the Khmer Rouge after Vietnam invaded Cambodia. Uh, and Vietnam did like the only real humanitarian intervention of the 20th century, where Vietnam invaded Cambodia and actually stopped the Cambodian genocide. The point is like the U.S. will torture a country for years and the price of defeating the U.S. in a war is almost as much as losing to the U.S. in a war. Like, they will torture a country for years and years for successful defiance against it. And I'm sorry, Matt, it looks like you wanted to jump in. Uh, no, but I will. Um, so, yes, uh, you know, uh, Afghanistan moving closer to BRIC, um, the, the alliance of the not U.S. dominated countries, uh, you know, if that ends up being something that is a way forward for them, then wonderful. Um, you know, is China going to just sort of step in and do what we're, you know, refusing to do in terms of just be decent? But that yeah, right. They might get, they might get like railroads instead of a carpet bomb. Like, <laughs> like God, God forbid. And that was a big fear. Why people were so critical of Biden? The media didn't care about like you know. The, the plight of Afghans uh, after the U.S. withdrawal, they were concerned that Russia or China might move in and have influence in this area. 
Um, and, you know, God forbid that Afghanistan have a period of, you know, peaceful development without U.S. bombs and U.S.-backed militias terrorizing the place. Yeah, so that brings us to really what our final section is here is and your second article. Like, we've been kind of dancing around it, but we want to know what is going on in Afghanistan now, if you could give us an overview, versus what NPR actually chose to cover. And I'll remind people that your second article uh, that just came, I believe it came out last week, right? The NPR, yes, last week. Yeah, NPR devotes almost two hours to Afghanistan over two weeks and 30 seconds to U.S. starving Afghanistan. So what is happening? And like you, you make a bold claim here uh, that the U.S. is starving Afghanistan. What is happening in, in Afghanistan in reality here in 2022 and really going back to 2021 when the the these sanctions began um what's happening and how did npr choose to report this issue and how much coverage did they give it right so uh npr did you know all these stories on afghanistan and uh, you'd think that with all this time all this focus spent on it uh, on, on the country for you know two weeks straight you'd think there'd be at least some mention of the fact that the u.s is trying to starve the country but there wasn't um, so why? So I say the U.S. is trying to stop the country. What does that mean? Well, right now, Afghanistan is in one of the worst famines and hunger crises and humanitarian crises the world is seeing. Um, you know, it's on the level uh, of Yemen. It's on the level of Syria. Um, you know, both other targets of U.S. intervention, you know, whole other episodes on those. But uh, Afghanistan, right now in Afghanistan, 95%, this is according to uh, the United Nations, 95% uh, of the country does not have enough to eat. 65% uh, uh, or half, half the population can't, uh, is it ha suffering from acute hunger. Uh, and there, there are millions of people, I don't have the numbers, I didn't cite them uh, directly in the article, but millions of people are on the brink of starvation within the next several months. So why is this happening? Well, when the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan, one of the things they did was, uh, you know, cut off aid, right? The, the Taliban are now a hostile government. There's a new government in Afghanistan. We don't have relations with them. So we cut off aid. Well, the problem is that 40% of Afghanistan's GDP was based on international aid. So that's wiped off the table. But, you know, the, they still have money saved up in other places. But uh, what the U.S. decided to do was to freeze the international banking reserves and get others to freeze uh, their sections of reserves, too. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole way the, the international reserve system works. It's, it's, you know, labyrinthian. But essentially, the Afghan government was holding money in U.S. banks. And the U.S. decided to freeze that money. The, the U.S. had $7 billion worth of uh, uh worth of Afghan reserves. And so they froze this. So that means that the Central Bank of Afghanistan can't manage liquidity among all the banking systems in Afghanistan. And so the banking system has completely collapsed. So that means not enough credit, not enough money flowing around in the system. That means the economy cannot function. Uh, and, you know, this was predicted uh, and at the onset, you know, rights agencies were immediately warning, like, yeah, you need to restart the Afghan economy if you want to get them out of this humanitarian crisis. 
you know, climate change. There's a drought. It's hot. Crops are, aren't growing. And this, is, this has been a growing problem in Afghanistan. And even during the U.S. occupation, uh, the numbers of hungry were steadily growing. Uh, and after the withdrawal, after the, the freezing of the reserves, uh, aid agencies were clear. They said, you know, you guys can give aid to, you know, the Red Cross and have them, you know, you know feed uh, a few hungry Afghans. But there's no substitute for getting the banking system and the entire economy back up, uh, back up to speed and, and working properly. But the U.S. knows this and are refusing to release the reserves. Um, now, as I mentioned earlier, that they, they were negotiating to release the reserves, but they haven't done so yet. And so the only way to describe this is a U.S. policy of uh, deliberately starving the Afghan people. And incidentally, this was recognized by a lot of people in the press. Uh, the Associated Press wrote that the hunger crisis will give the U.S. leverage as they attempt to push the, the new Taliban government to be more inclusive. So look closely at what that's saying. It's saying we care about the Afghan women. We care about the Afghan people. We want them to have an inclusive government. And so we're going to starve those people <laughs> until their government decides to behave nicely. Does that even make sense? No, but that's exactly what's going on. And, you know, that's sort of the same, same government we say is not responsive to the to people. Exactly. And, and exactly. somehow they have the ability to control the government. You know, th this thing about sanctions, um, you know, I don't know how, you know, I, we were always ready to go to war and bomb somebody. But the point at which we use these non-military forms of warfare uh, and had the American public say, oh, thank goodness, you know, we, we're our, our efforts to have world peace are making progress. Look, we're not bombing. It's it's a package of sanctions. It's it's an embargo with terms. It's like, you know, our hands are clean. And that 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 is just so deeply in the American consciousness now that. Uh, you know, I don't know what, how to shake it. And Afghanistan should be what shakes it. You know, this country that we can't uh, claim to care so deeply about, those voices in the, the audio pieces. Um, and then, you know, the, the connection of, yeah, and it's because of our sanctions in a very big part. So, you know, I don't Precisely. know, I don't know when exactly that connection right. clicks for people. Yeah. And so and I was looking for NPR to even mention, you know, those those statistics, those statistics, hard word to say, those yeah. stats are pretty, you know, damning. They're they're, they're insane. Like 95 percent of the population doesn't have enough to eat. Well, uh, when was that mentioned in the piece? It was mentioned once uh, in a small little paragraph, a small little line that lasted 30 seconds and said, oh, yeah, you know, um, international apathy is contributing to uh the the uh, the suffering of Afghanistan. Uh, actually, ninety percent of the people can't even eat. Uh, so this mention was like, uh, like buried in the middle of this other uh, this discussion. And so, if you were you know a casual viewer, you might have blinked or you might have like taken a sip of a drink and missed it. Um, but so it only occupied thirty seconds out of almost two hours of nonstop coverage. So that's that's. That's journalistic malpractice. Um, and, you know, I, I wrote this article and 
uh, fair included like an action item. Like you can try and reach out to NPR, try to get them, tell them that you're dissatisfied. You know, we fair got a few emails about people who were like, yeah, this is the last straw for me. I'm, uh, I'm no longer uh, being a sustaining member of NPR, of my local NPR station. Um, so I, I wrote this and, you know, I even tweeted out at them. I said, Hey, you know, I, I know like a lot of you guys will are, like think of yourselves as like, you know, serious, kind, like nice people. You, you guys are, you guys are probably like pleasant to be around, but don't you guys realize what you're doing? Like, don't you realize that you are legitimizing this campaign? Uh, the Intercept called it tantamount to mass murder. They are starving people. Uh, and NPR doesn't seem to care. And it's not like they don't know. Uh, and this was one of the interesting things I found. Uh, in a piece, uh, I don't remember which one, I don't have the piece up in front of me, but in a piece, they uh, they didn't mention the humanitarian crisis, but in the article version of the piece, there were two sentences about it. Um, and one of the sentences uh, talks about like, yeah, there's uh, Afghan people are starving. They linked to a human rights report, human rights watch report, whose first sentence reads something like, the United States needs to unfreeze the Taliban's banking reserves in order to get the Afghan economy uh, uh, up and running. And there is no substitute for that, and that's what's causing the crisis. It was something like that. I'm, I'm misquoting it, but it, that was the first line in the piece. Uh, and so it's not, it's not like they didn't see it. It's not like they don't know this. It's not like the people at NPR are completely shut off from the world. They saw it. They put it in their own piece, but they decided that the the listeners at home or in their cars, they didn't need to hear that. That's not important. Like, that's that's insane to me. And, and like, the, the fact that these people can, you know, go around and claim that they're doing serious journalism, I mean, I, I, I don't even want to be snarky. They don't even have to respond to me. They should just do better. They should just actually start covering the news world. But, you know... The propaganda model tells you pretty pretty much why that's unlikely to happen. Yeah, and this idea that sanctions are kind of just this benign alternative to bombing a country, like uh, it's not even a hidden fact that sanctions, when you count the Iraq sanctions of the 90s and more recently Venezuela sanctions and God knows how many people the current Afghanistan sanctions have killed, Sanctions have killed more people than weapons of mass destruction. Uh, when you add up the probably well over a million people now that have been deprived, it's very hard to tally these numbers, but deprivation due to lack of medicine, lack of access to food, susceptibility to disease, these things kill lots of people. And it, you mentioned something I have to comment on, that the idea that the U.S. is using sanctions as leverage, as if that's like some benign thing again. It's like that... that same line was used right after the 1991 Gulf War. It's like in the Washington Post, there's an article called Allied Bombing Struck Widely. And it's literally, they quote Air Force officials saying like, well, we believe that if we bomb civilian targets, we would, uh, we would accentuate the effect of the sanctions and that would be able to be used against Saddam, you know, the Iraqi people, as leverage after the war was over. It's like, so you're just willing to kill hundreds of thousands of people as quote-unquote leverage. It's like, just look at this the other way. Could, could Osama bin Laden say that we wanted to use the September 11th attacks as leverage against the American empire? And it's like, 
well, that's 3,000 people. Let's talk about half a million people. Let's talk about 40,000 people in, a, in a Venezuela. And uh, we don't have to talk about it too much, but I know you, like, you've mentioned it before. I've tried to mention it as well. The, the very role of sanctions when articles in mainstream media are written about alleged en- enemy countries like Venezuela, like Iran, like Syria, they almost always bury the fact of U.S. sanctions. Like, it's like the Venezuela economy's suffering for the following reason. And it's like the 18th paragraph they mention there are, all right, there are U.S. sanctions against this country. As if that's like some minor <laughs> exactly. detail. That was actually the first piece I wrote for FAIR. Uh, it was about uh, an Times article that, you know, was talking about the Venezuelan healthcare system and how horrible it was. And then, it, like, did a passing mention of uh, U.S. sanction. I was like, "Are you joking? Like, come on! Like, you can't, you can't, like, starve a country. You can't uh, blockade a country, embargo a country, and then blame it when things go wrong, when things aren't running how they should. Like, that was the goal. You knew this would happen. And uh, the people at the New York Times, I mean, they they know what's going on. The, uh, the author of that piece, uh, in fact, in subsequent pieces about problems in Venezuela, I have seen more mentions of uh, U.S. sanctions. It's not censured. It's not uh, shown as the primary contribution of the United States to this whole situation. But, you know, they at least mention it now. You know, I'm going to uh, I'm going to offer this up in uh, personal. Uh, I had a family member in an emergency room of a hospital about three weeks ago. Um, very difficult situation, um, and we spent about a day and a half in the the holding area of the emergency room, not getting admitted into the hospital, uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, a uh, good hospital. And at one point, you know, in the middle of worrying, worrying about this family member, I just looked around and started imagining being in a hospital that didn't have electricity or the ability to, like, wash linen or, uh, you know, the medication that, you know, that was coming around regularly being in short supply or the staff not getting paychecks. It, it, it was just uh, a reality that I, I like to think I'm already dealing with, but it just, uh, you know, it was a, a, it helped to really think a bit more clearly than I even normally do. That's really useful, though, to, like, put people in those situations. Uh, and, like, you know, like, imagine, like, Iraq through the 90s, like, people couldn't access electricity. That means living through the Iraqi summer where it's 110 degrees every day without air conditioning. Like, I'm, a, I, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm very sensitive to that stuff, right? Like, I, it gets to be, like, 80 degrees and I don't have air conditioning. I'm complaining. My wife's uh, yelling at me for being too sensitive about this stuff. But... Imagine living through these countries with, where it reaches over 100 degrees and you can't access any electricity. And uh, I know we got to close out here. Um, just like the excuses they use about sanctions, well, those economies weren't functioning well to begin with. They were poorly managed. Uh, let's accept those propaganda points as, at face value. It's like, all right, so it's accept. They were suffering already, and like you see someone that's suffering, and you think it's acceptable to what kick them while they're down. Uh, there's a great author that uh, Matt and I both follow, Justin Poder. He's actually been on this podcast before, where they he wrote a book about a, a Venezuela. It's like their their excuse is well, their economy was poorly run. 
what, so their economy was poorly run, so you insisted on making them suffer more? Like, you see someone who's in the hospital and you insist on punching them in the face while they're there. Uh, so even if you accept No, but it's it, because you care about them so right? much. you got to make it worse because you care about them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, Bryce, I, I, I want to get... I want you to comment on one more thing as we close out here. Uh, I think a lot of... All of us in this conversation probably believe this, but let's, let's explain to people, and I think you're the best one to put this point forward. Um, why is it most valuable for NPR to have focused on what the U.S. is doing in this situation? Like, why would it have been a much more valuable piece for NPR to focus on the effect of U.S. sanctions, the effect of the United States freezing the central bank in Afghanistan, given NPR's listenership? Uh, can you comment on that? Right. So there, there's like this point of view uh, that's pervasive in, you know, some left liberal circles that, you know, all governments are bad and they should be covered equally. They should be criticized equally. No one is perfect and everyone's at fault. Um, and so in the case of, you know, a hostile government like the Taliban, like the U.S., it's good to, you know, give both sides to say, hey, yes, the U.S. might be doing something a little bit bad, but the Taliban is also bad. Um, in my view, this is wrong. Uh, it's wrong because, A, the country with the most agency in the world is the United States. They're the most powerful. They're the most, uh, they have the history of the most violence. Um, and so focusing on them, uh, just as a matter of uh, global understanding, as a matter of understanding the world is essential. Uh, and B, the other reason that it's important to focus on the U.S. is because the audience is in the U.S. Um, it's one thing to focus on problems that you can't solve, that you can never solve, to criticize people who you will never have any control over. It's an entirely other thing. It's a more important thing to criticize a government that you can control, that you can influence. Uh, it's your tax dollars. It's your, it's, it, it, this violence is being done in your name. And that's to be, uh, as a matter of first principles, your first priority. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. talks a big game about uh, wanting to end world violence, about, uh, you know, ending global terrorism. Well, the first and easiest thing they could do to reduce those sorts of things, to reduce global terrorism, is to stop participating in it, right? But, uh, and NPR especially, I mean, NPR's audience skews a uh, liberal, skews a, uh, you know, upper middle class, um, and this is the political class in this country. Those are the people who vote. Those are the people who staff campaigns, who work in Washington, be, whose opinions are even remotely taken into account when this country does, does what it does. Uh, and so that's why these people are some of the most propagandized people on earth. That's why so much of an effort is made to sway these minds, to bring them into the fold. I mean, from a young age. But especially when you know, you know you're a well-educated adult, you explain this sorts of things to uh, you know your average average guy who doesn't follow politics at all. You explain like, hey, the U.S. is starving Afghanistan. Uh, uh, and they'll be like, hey, yeah, that's bad. We should stop. But you explain, you say that to you know one of these quote-unquote educated people, they'll give you five hundred thousand reasons why starving them is actually a good thing, <laughs> and that we shouldn't we should be doing more to starve them. Even we should be we shouldn't even talk to the Taliban. Uh, but this is what's called an education in America, and uh, 
that political class affecting affecting those people is probably the most important role of the U.S. media. Like I said at the top of the show, propaganda is to a democracy what the bludgeon is to a dictatorship. It's important to control these people's thoughts. It's important to shape their discussions. It's important to uh, preclude any uh, alternative views from their worldview. That's really well said. Um, yeah, and I, I'll just add in, like, think of media like triage, right? Like, you know, triage and medical care, like, you treat the most, well, you, you do two things. You treat the most extreme injuries first, right, the, 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 the most life-threatening injuries, but also you treat, you sadly have to treat the injuries that you can actually help over the ones that sadly you can't treat. And the reality is we have a lot more power in the United States to stop the United States from starving Afghanistan than we do to affect Taliban policies. And we can apply this to situations across the world. Uh, Matt, I, any I'd, final I'd comments? like to offer this as yeah, my final thought here. You know, uh, the question of like, what's the starting point when we're paying attention to another country and what's happening there? Um, you know, if, 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 if in Afghanistan it's going to be 2001, that's just not okay with me. Uh, it needs to be um, at least, you know, 25 years earlier. Uh, for Ukraine, it can't be February of last year. It has to be at least, you know, like 2014. You have to like, this in conversations with people where, re, you know, nice people, reasonable people, and they just, they, they don't, um, see something, uh, my effort has been to just push the timeline farther back. Like, you know, tell me what you think about what was happening from this point forward. And so I think I've, I've settled on the 72 year rule. <laughs> like if, if you're going to write, if you're going to be a media person presence talking about Afghanistan or, you know, uh, Venezuela or Colombia or whatever the next, the next, next Afghanistan might be, um, then, you, you have to pass the 72-year rule of being able to pick up the thread in 1950. And I know that leaves some countries out, you know, that had, had us messing with them in earlier periods of time. But you have to be able to pick it up from 1950 and take it to today and have what you're saying about what's happening today still make sense. Um, you know, it, it doesn't sound like it's a long period of time, I suppose, but it doesn't sound like too big a, a job for an educated journalist to take on especially with the internet at their fingertips i mean like you you can just google this stuff like google taliban offer give up bin laden you, you're already more educated than if you just listened to that NPR program like it there's no excuse for it yeah that's really great points all around uh bryce we really thank you for being with us today you gave us a lot of your time uh, as you leave here uh where can people find your work um, you can find my work at fair.org. You can just search under my name, Bryce Green. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at the Green BJ Green with any at the end, because because uh, we're cool here. Well, uh, and I encourage people to read both of those articles and all of Bryce's work at Fair, and just generally read Fair in general. Like like you, it's great coverage of mainstream media. The great magazine. Yeah, the two articles. Most recently, that Bryce wrote, our NPR distorts history of U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. And the second article is NPR devotes almost two hours to Afghanistan over two weeks and 30 seconds to U.S. starving Afghans. Bryce, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. 
Yes, really, really good to talk to you. Yeah, looking forward to next time.